Well, good morning, and would you please join me in opening up our Bibles to Psalm 110 this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you should find a blue pew Bible in front of you, and you can find Psalm 110 on page 509. We'd love to follow along with us there. Um, But before we get going, it is is good to be back. Our our family has had an ambitious travel schedule this summer between visiting Rochelle's family and uh, a couple of speaking engagements and then vacation with my family. And so uh, we are good and tired. And it's a good tired. And if you have young kids, you know that we now need to rest from our vacations um, and are kind of looking forward to settling back into the routine here. Um, and perhaps you've been in a similar situation or you're looking at the rest of August, you know, you'll be traveling. I know many of our church family are uh, in and out throughout the summer, but it is good to be together today. And as we expected, since we announced it to you earlier in the summer, uh, these last couple months have gone quickly. And Pastor Joe's final day with us at Grace Church is next Sunday, August 14th. And so at our gathering next weekend, we will have the opportunity to honor Pastor Joe, to hear from him, and then to uh, play a part in commissioning he and Helen and the family to their next assignment, uh, where he'll be serving as a senior pastor of Joy Christian Fellowship over in Englewood. And so um, after the 11 a.m. service next Sunday, uh, we will plan to have an outdoor luncheon um, and give Joe and the family an opportunity to see and speak with as many of you as possible. Um, so that if you are in town next weekend, uh, we hope you plan to be here uh, at either service. We'll still have 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. service. And then we would love for you to either come back for or stay at the luncheon, uh, re- depending on which service that you attend next week. And so uh, we are asking if you're able and willing to register for that. So our team who is putting that luncheon together has a ballpark number. Uh, as we've done with other luncheons, we will provide the main dish. Um, and then if you're able, you can bring a side dish or a salad or dessert. Uh, that's not a requirement to attend or I don't let that keep you from coming, uh, but it is encouraged. Um, and so uh, we will be looking forward to that next Sunday. Um, and if you want to register on your bulletin, there's a, there's a QR code that you can get to our events tab. If you're like, I will not remember after I step outside this building, go ahead and do it now. All right, just do it quickly. Um, but we are going to now continue in our summer series where we are uh, in the book of Psalms. And throughout this summer, we are choosing a selection from the various categories um, or genres of psalms. And we've uh, kind of split them into kind of six categories, and they'll be up on the screen, uh, that we kind of say we want to get a cross-section of these psalms throughout the summer. This is one way you could categorize 150 psalms um, between praise and thanksgiving and lament and psalms of confidence, wisdom, and divine kingship. And the smallest of those categories, in terms of the number of psalms within it, is divine kingship. And that is the one that Psalm 110 falls into. And this is a fascinating psalm, but it might not be obvious at first as to why. Um, As you'll see in a moment when we read it, it is short. It is just seven verses. Um, It might sound obscure in some of the metaphors or phrasing and illustrations. There's a name within it that you won't, maybe won't know who that is. And then it finishes with a very aggressive tone. It's not, I'll I'll put it this way, for those of you who've maybe been around church circles for a while, you'll get this. It's not the kind of passage where if you were to read it amongst a bunch bunch of Christians, that you'll hear this after. Mm. 
Amen. But what makes Psalm 110 fascinating is that it is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. What that means is that Jesus and the apostles relied heavily upon this text, which was written a thousand years before they were born, to illuminate their present-day reality, to illuminate the future reality for them and for followers of Jesus that will come after them. In total, there are 27 either direct quotes or references in the New Testament from these seven verses in Psalm 110. And the reason is simple. Psalm 110, a divine kingship psalm, is unequivocally about Jesus. And if you've been around Grace Church for a while, you might say, yeah, we know, Pastor, you're always telling us that the whole Bible is about Jesus. And that is true in that we say that the Bible is not a well-meaning series of morality myths. It's not a strict rule book on how to live so you can get to heaven someday. It's not an advice manual on how to live your best life now. But the Bible is a single, unfolding, thrilling story that has an ultimate author with an ultimate plot about an ultimate hero, and his name is Jesus. That's what we mean when we often say that the whole Bible is about Jesus and that the whole Bible in some way is going to connect to the person and work of Jesus. But then there are certain passages, certain chapters that are directly about Jesus. And the ones that are especially powerful, that are especially uh, kind of mysterious and yet clear, are the ones in the Old Testament written before Jesus was born. And Psalm 110 is one of those passages. It is often referred to as a messianic psalm, a psalm about the Messiah that the Jewish people were looking forward to. Again, written a thousand years before a girl named Mary would be told she was pregnant with the Son of God. So with that context, follow along as I read Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Amen. Psalm 110, again, is about the Messiah that is to come. And on on, on this side of the cross, on this side of the empty tomb where we stand today, we can now look back on Psalm 110 and see it is all about Jesus. It is this ancient text from the past that illuminates Jesus, uh, not only in his person and work and ministry, but Jesus right now, and then we'll prophesy about Jesus in the future. And so as we kind of set out unpacking this sermon, uh, I want to encourage us in telling you beforehand, this sermon is, is deep. Uh, 
But, but when I say deep, don't think confusing, don't think unrelatable, don't think boring. I, I say deep because as Jen Wilkin says in her book, Women of the Word, which by the way is good for men too, side note, she says this, if we want to feel deeply for God, we must learn to think deeply about God. Amen? If you want to feel deeply, if you want your affection stirred for the Lord, then we must learn and grow and be able to think deeply about Him. And so I hope as we unpack the depth of this psalm that it will become plain to us why it matters, how it can, does, and will impact your life now and forever. And so we're going to look at basically three aspects of this psalm about Jesus. Number one, Jesus as the Christ. Psalm 110 is about Jesus as the Christ. Um, so what, during what we now consider Holy Week, uh, perhaps you're familiar with the phrase Holy Week, that is the week in between uh, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on a Sunday and his resurrection from the dead the following Sunday, what we now call Easter Sunday. And during that week, Jesus was teaching in the city, and by this point, the Pharisees were done with him. They had already made up their mind about him. They got up to the point where they're no longer trying to decide who is Jesus, what is he about, can we trust him, uh, sh should we kind of uh, try to kind of win him over. Uh, they, they were past that point. They did not like Jesus. They knew he had to go primarily because he was a threat to their comfort and their power. And so any interaction they had with Jesus during Holy Week, they were only listening to critique. They were only interacting with him to get an advantage to take him down, to trap him. And, and, and let's be honest, we can fall into this mindset in certain relationships in our own lives, in our families, in our churches, in our workplaces, in politics, where you are no longer open to what someone else has to say, you're no longer open to hearing their perspective, that you have decided you don't like them. For whatever reason of what happened in the past, you don't like them, and now your entire approach with this person is to listen in order to trap them, to listen in order to jump on or further confirm your own feelings that you've already decided you had about them. You're done being open. You might be, seem interested outwardly, but that's only for the purpose of taking them down. When we do that, we have the mindset of a Pharisee. That is the mindset of a Pharisee. They are in and amongst the crowds that Jesus is teaching to during Holy Week, and they are asking questions in the midst of the crowds in hopes that it will expose him, it will entangle him in his teaching, so they can take him down. And so you get to Matthew 22, and they're asking questions about paying taxes, about marriage, about the laws of Moses, and then at the very end of the chapter, after Jesus is interacting with them, answering their questions, Jesus turns the table on them and asks them a question. And this is what it says in Matthew 22. He says, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, that they being the Pharisees, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? saying, and now Jesus quotes Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus goes on and says, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? 
And I love this. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So if you were to ask me, a little bit of a side note here, but I think important to state this. If you were to ask me, why do I believe the Bible is the very word of God? That's a crucial question that every generation needs to have an answer for when their generation asks them. If we're going to be faithful as a church, and we're going to be salt and light where God has placed us, the word is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light for our path. And when someone asks you, why? Why do you put so much faith in this? Uh, Kids, as you grow older, if if God has put grace on your life of growing up in a Christian home, you're going to get to a place where uh, a friend or someone's going to ask you, why do you believe in this? Why is this so important to you? Why should I believe in that just because you believe in that? It's a fair question that every generation asks, and every generation should be prepared to speak to. And there's a lot you could say in response to that question. But at the top of the list, I believe the Bible is the Word of God because Jesus believed the Bible was the Word of God. Jesus knew the Scriptures were inspired and the scriptures were fulfilled in him. And so Jesus, throughout his ministry, he read it. He quoted it. He taught from it. And so if I believe in Jesus, that he died for my sins, and, and I am forgiven because of his blood spilled for me, and that the Spirit has awakened me to that faith, then it is not a large step for me to say, I believe in the Bible because Jesus did. And similarly, why do I believe Jesus was God? Similar question, but a little bit different. But again, the same answer. Because Jesus knew he was God, and I believe in him. And since I believe in him, I choose to believe him. That Jesus is the Christ. And when he's asking the Pharisees this question of who is David talking about, who is the Christ to you, he is inferring to himself, he's inferring to all those, including us, who will come after him and read this interaction he had with the Pharisees, that he is the Messiah. He is the one in whom David foretold in Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, verse 1, is an incredible verse to start off, as we can now interpret it through Jesus' own words. This is an amazing insight into the triune God, One God in three persons. Because King David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, is given insight to a secret and intimate dialogue between the divine Father and the divine Son. It's incredible. That this is the Father speaking to the Son, and David got to listen in. And David got to write it down. If your Bibles are still open, look closely at verse 1. What do you notice? The first Lord is all caps. And the second Lord is not. And that is because the literal translation in the Hebrew is, Yahweh says to my Adonai. Yahweh, the great I am, says to my Adonai, my master, sit at my right hand. So when David says here, my Lord... This is clearly speaking of someone divine in Israel for the simple fact that David is king of Israel. 
And David is referring to someone as his Lord, meaning someone who is above him. But listen, when you're king, there is no one above you. You're top of the depth chart. And so David is given this insight to someone who is his Lord, something he could only write if he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, that there's someone above him, someone that is to come, someone who will sit at the right hand of the Father, and it won't be David. It'll be somebody greater than David. And Jesus now states to the Pharisees just days before he'll be crucified, who is the Christ to you? I am he. The God of the universe invites someone greater than David to sit at my right hand. Uh, This is more so in ancient culture than we uh, understand today, but there's enough language in our kind of culture where we kind of get the point that to sit at someone's right hand was to occupy a place of honor. So to sit at the right hand of a host for dinner was to be the special appointed guest for the evening. It's the one everyone's focused on. And again, we don't use that language, but we kind of understand that, that when you're kind of, when, when a party or a dinner or a meal is focused on you, you sit at the kind of honored spot. For those of you who've gone to weddings this summer, uh, they don't put the groom and the bride of the reception at table 17 in the right corner, all right? Like, like, like they are front and center. Everything kind of revolves around them. That's what it is to sit at the right hand of the host, and then to, sing at, to sit at a king's right hand in ancient culture, both literally and figuratively, was to share in his rule and his reign. It's where we get the modern-day phrase, the right-hand man, which is also now the popular title of a song on the Hamilton soundtrack, all right, that maybe more of you are thinking about now. It's, it's your right-hand man. It's the person who shares in the rule and the reign of a leader. And so the divine Son, the Messiah, is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is ruling. He is reigning, which is then what verses 2 and 3 unpack. He says, he sends forth from Zion, from the place of the throne. He's ruling in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. The more you dig into Psalm 110, the more illuminating it gets, the more powerful it gets. Think about it from our vantage point. Psalm 110, again, written a thousand years before Jesus was born, written 3,000 years from where we stand today. And it spoke not only of Jesus as the Christ, but now he's speaking of the church. The one through whom Jesus sends forth, the one whom Jesus rules and reigns over, he sends forth his power, and his rule is through the church in the midst of a fallen world. That's what Psalm 110 says. He says, you are a ruler amongst your enemies. You're a ruler in foreign territory, across enemy lines. And that rule is not the head of a nation, but as head of the church the holy Catholic Church, Catholic with a little c, meaning the global church in which each local church, including Grace Church, is a representation of. And so this begs an interesting question for us as we read Psalm 110. Um, If you proclaim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, can I ask you this? How do you envision Jesus today? What is your picture of Jesus right now? What's he doing right now. 
I think many Christians, when they think of Jesus, maybe they primarily think about the baby in the manger. Because of how much time and emphasis is put on the Christmas season in our culture, you think about the story and you think about Jesus being born. Many others see Jesus as a teacher and a healer in his earthly ministry as told in the Gospels. He cared a lot about justice. He cared about healing and turning the power structures upside down. Many others still, and perhaps a church like Grace, we find ourselves in this category most often, we see Jesus as the man hanging on the cross. Because we are cross-central here at Grace, that he died for the sins of the world. And or with that, Jesus who walked out of the tomb, who declared victory over death and revealed himself to his disciples. Those are all true pictures of Jesus and have value. But it's not the current day picture of Jesus. What is your picture of Jesus today? What's he doing now? I think the right picture, as foretold in Psalm 110, is Jesus exalted in the position of honor at the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning over his kingdom, which is visually represented in the church, in the people of God. And we would do well to recapture this picture and understand its implications for us today. Because Psalm 110 was not only an influential passage for Jesus and his direct disciples, but it continued to be for the early church through the patristic period, which is between the years of 100 and 500 A.D. And one of the lasting legacies of that period are these ancient creeds or confessions that were written and recited by the church when they gathered in order to affirm the major beliefs of the faith and protect the church from heresy. And one of, if not the most popular of those creeds, is the Apostles' Creed. Listen now to the middle section of this creed and think about how Psalm 110 deeply shapes it. It will be on the screen. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Notice the language is past tense for what Jesus did do. He was conceived. He suffered, he crucified, he died, he, he was buried, he ascended, all past tense. And then, in the middle of the creed, the shift to the present tense. What's he doing now? He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Jesus, today, August 7th, 2022, is ruling from his throne Jesus is alive and well. Church, is your Jesus alive and well today? What blessed assurance we have in him that our Savior is not just someone who did something in the past. Our Savior is doing it now. And what our lives, 
what our church would look like if we live in the confidence that Jesus is head over this church and he rules in the world not through litigation. He rules in the world not through Christian nations. He rules in the world not forcing others into submission, but he draws the world near to himself through the faith-filled church and at times the suffering church that will proclaim his name and proclaim the gospel in all circumstances. What maybe we need to recapture today is the reminder that far more people have come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior through the witness of suffering Christians than it has through the reign of powerful ones. This is Jesus as the Christ. Number one, let's go to number two. Jesus as the priest. Jesus as the priest. Uh, so verse one of Psalm 110 is the most quoted and referenced verse in the New Testament. But verse four is the second most, which might sound surprising because verse four invokes a mysterious character. Let me read verse four again. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. That will preach on its own. Then you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. David, again getting insight into this divine dialogue within the triune God, that God is one, but he is three persons in one God. It's the mystery of creation, but it's clear in Scripture. And here is the divine Father making an oath to the divine Son that God will not change his mind. God's action is as sure as his word. That's not true for me. That's not true for you. But what God says, he will always do. And he will not. For he cannot change his mind. Now, who is Melchizedek and why is he being mentioned? I had to practice saying his name multiple times this week. All right? Like, like who is he? All right. So in five minutes or less, let's talk Melchizedek. And then, more important, what does Melchizedek tell us about Jesus? This man, Melchizedek, is mentioned three times in the Bible, in three books. First is in Genesis 14, at the very beginning of the Bible. Abraham has just saved his nephew Lot from a coalition of kings who joined together to capture Lot and his family and his possessions, which were many. Abraham says, don't mess with my family. Abraham comes in and frees Lot. He defeats the kings, and then on a walk back, he defeats more kings, I think nine in total. And then, at, on his walk back, a guy named Melchizedek greets him, blesses him, and leaves in the span of three verses. Let me read them for you now, and I think we're going to have them up on the screen. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Parentheses, he was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's it. Melchizedek exits stage left. There's no mention of him again anywhere in Scripture for 1,000 years until Psalm 110. The second mention, which we just read. And then, again, no mention of Melchizedek anywhere in Scripture for another thousand years. 
until the book of Hebrews. And then the author of Hebrews draws the connection between Jesus and Melchizedek, and he does it progressively from chapters 5 through 10. So I will leave that for you to study on your own this afternoon. And I know you all will at your own leisure. But you could say Hebrews 5 to Hebrews 10 is an extended exposition of Psalm 110, verse 4. But you might have heard some people say that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate embodied Christ, that it was Jesus Christ before he was born. I think that's not what this means, and that's not who he was. Rather, he was an important man who served as a type of Christ. Hang with me. A type of Christ in the Old Testament is not Christ himself, but something that bears witness to Christ. There are various types in the Old Testament, and Melchizedek, I think, is clearly a type of Christ. He is not Christ, but is something and someone who bears witness to the Christ. And the reason why he is a type is because there is no mention of any king before Melchizedek or after. We just know he was king of Salem, but we're not told like we are other kings who are kings before him or who are kings after him. We have no idea. There's no birth year or death record of Melchizedek. He is seen once, and we know that he ruled, he reigned, and he sacrificed. Like the divine and eternal son, he stands alone as king. No birth year, no end date. But even more significantly than that, especially to the Jewish people who are reading and singing Psalm 110 regularly in their gatherings, are the offices that Melchizedek held. Hang with me. According to law and tradition in Israel, and the law of Moses that Moses instated, the offices of king and priest were purposely held separate. And it was intentional. In Israel, no king could be a priest, and no priest could be a king. They were held separate because, um, not unlike a democratic view of government, no one person in Israel could handle that much power and not abuse it. In fact, we know that there were bad priests and bad kings. Think about if there was somebody who was both king and priest. They could not handle that much power until Jesus. Jesus, the perfect God-man, came to be the fulfillment as the Christ. He would be one who would be both kingly and priestly over God's people. And the knowers of the Old Testament, those who recognize the Old Testament, who study the Old Testament, they would understand that before Jesus, there's only one person in the Bible who explicitly held both titles. Who was it? Melchizedek. Recall the three verses we just read in Genesis 14, how they introduced them. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Parentheses, he was priest of God Most High. The only one before Jesus who explicitly held both titles. Which is why, from Genesis to Psalm 110 to the book of Hebrews, this thread is pulled through, and the author of Hebrews is the one who draws it out, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to deliver a Christ who will not only reign over God's people as king, but will sacrifice for God's people as priest. It is the climax of the book of Hebrews 
that while every priest before Jesus made sacrifices on behalf of Israel for the forgiveness of sin, Jesus was the sacrifice himself. That God in the flesh gave himself, don't let this sound normal to you, that God gave himself and died for the atonement of sin so that by his death, forgiveness of sin may be granted, the healing of the ruptures of the fall may be received. And so just as Jesus is right now, today, ruling and reigning as king, Jesus right now, today, is interceding for us as priests. For, as the Father proclaimed, you are a priest forever. Present language, you are a priest forever. Pastor Joe, we didn't even talk about this beforehand, but he introduced the congregational prayer. Do you remember what he said? That we can go before the throne with confidence. Why? And he said that is in the book of Hebrews. Why? Because Jesus is there at the throne today. And when we go before him, we can go with confidence because he's going to intercede for us because he will be priest forever. This is where this becomes not just a neat Bible connection about Melchizedek and Jesus that you could use at your next dinner party, but they probably won't be impressed. That this is not just to make a connection in the Bible, but it's a connection that you might use, that the Spirit might use to be a bedrock of assurance for your soul. That the moment you believe in Jesus, you from that day can walk in freedom because Jesus is interceding for you right now. He died once for all, for all sin, meaning there is no sin that God will not be faithful and just to forgive. Past sin, present sin, future sin, sin you have not even committed yet. Jesus died for that. And what that means for you when you truly grasp that is that you cannot outrun God's grace. You can't get to the bottom of that well. Once you are adopted into his family, you will never not be near to him. You will never hear him say, depart from me. Because it is his kindness that leads to repentance. It is his eagerness to forgive your sin that actually serves as the fuel for you to go and sin no more. To pursue him. Because you know you will forever be kept by him. I lament how many Christians walk through their life without actually owning that truth. There is no joy to be had in this world that is more joyful than a believer having assurance of their salvation in Jesus Christ. And that assurance is not had by trying harder, but through surrender to your high priest, Jesus, and resting in that love. Because when he was hanging on the cross and he said, it is finished, he was able to sit down at the right hand of the Father. And in him, you can sit down too. Rest in him. This is Jesus as the priest. And now that leaves number three and last, Jesus as the judge. We see Jesus as the Christ. We see Jesus as the priest. And now, Psalm 110, Jesus as the judge. Verses five through seven speak of what Jesus will do in the future. We know he is reigning as king. We know he is interceding as priest. And now he will execute judgment as a righteous, 
holy, perfect judge. Uh, if you were here or you heard the sermon from a couple weeks ago in Psalm 138, we saw in that was a psalm of thanksgiving, how there will be a day when kings will see and give thanks to his name, Psalm 138 said. And now in Psalm 110, we see the flip side of that coin, that he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. And that's not a contradiction between Psalm 138 and Psalm 110, but it is a full picture of truth. That in final judgment, all people, including kings, will either submit to King Jesus in joy or be crushed by King Jesus in agony. And either way, Jesus will reign. And all will see and know who is the true king over all things and who has been sovereignly reigning over his creation this whole time. This final affirmation of Jesus as the judge is the promise that he will punish evil. There is no such thing as getting away with it before the Lord. He will punish all evil. He will give justice to all. And on that day, the Bible says, it will not be an epic battle like the end of a Rocky movie. It will be quick. It will be decisive. And Jesus will reign. And this is also an invitation to those who believe that all evil that we have committed and will commit will either be paid for by us or it was paid for by Jesus Christ. And for those who believe in him can have true assurance and faith and need not fear that day. And when you are truly assured of your status before God in Christ, again, that's not just a future uh, kind of affirmation for you that you'll be good someday, but when you live free in this world, you are better equipped to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You're better equipped to love your neighbor as yourself. You're better equipped to advocate for justice. You're better equipped to work towards the new heavens and the new earth that will surely come. An assured Christian is a faithful Christian who will do the work God has called them to do. So Psalm 110 is a fascinating psalm. Seven verses that connect us from Genesis to Hebrews to Revelation, where the divine Son from eternity past to the divine King in eternity future, when we hear and understand and are strengthened by it, we can read and anticipate the final words of Scripture with anticipation. And so for our closing prayer, I'm going to say the prayer of this King Jesus that ends the Bible. So would you please bow with me? And I'm going to be reading from Revelation chapter 22, verses 16 to 21. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, 
God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand now as we respond in song, praise and worship towards this King Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the priest, and who is the judge.